morning. Good morning. Good morning to you. No, okay. It's good to have you with us this morning. Um, welcome. want to welcome those who are in the auditorium and also those who are in the, ch- in the gym and those who are online. A couple of uh, announcements before we get started. Uh, first of all, there is a key that was found to a Toyota out here. I think, uh, Greg, did you say that that's in the office? Okay, it's in the office. So you may need to get home today. You may want to go find that, that key. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to all our moms here, and uh, a round of applause for the mothers. Yeah, there we go. All right. If you're interested in a men's overnight backpacking trip, that's May 21st through 22nd. Um, it should be an exciting time, a time of fellowship. Um, and see Mike Presley. Mike, where are you? Where's my, hey, Mike, there he is. There he goes. See Mike. He also has some loaner gear, so if you're a newbie, first time on a backpacking trip, he can help you out, so that'd be great. And then I just want to encourage you, we have our prayer opportunity today at 4 o'clock. It's an opportunity to worship the Lord together. Um, I know that's sometimes difficult in terms of our busy schedules, but I believe that prayer is essential to our to our spiritual lives and to the to the life of the church it's the lifeblood of the church so i just encourage you to be there four o'clock and have an opportunity to pray with uh, brothers and sisters our call to worship this morning comes from psalm 135 verses 1 through 7 and verse 19 to 21 praise the lord praise the name of the lord give praise O servants of the lord who stand in the house of the lord in the courts of the house of our god Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the winds from his storehouses. Verse 19, O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Let's praise the Lord together. Y'all stand as we get ready to worship this morning. Oh, 
Praise God. 
and my God. Father, we gather this morning to proclaim our confidence and faith in you. Help our unbelief this morning. We have just sung, I believe in you, God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three Lord, that proclamation may be true of our hearts this morning. Lord, we need you. We are people who are prone to wander and lose the God that we love. God, this morning, there may be those in this room who are hurting. There are those who cannot see like they would like to see. And I pray that this morning you would give them eyes to see and ears to hear. Father, we pray this morning for a number of things. We pray for the Gateway Young Adults and we pray for wisdom for Zach and Parker as they lead that group. Lord, I pray for these young adults that they would grow in their faith and their love for you. Lord, that they would be instruments of grace in this community, in this city. Use them in a great and mighty way. Lord, I pray for Lenny and Debbie Dixon. Thank you so much for the ministry. The ministry to those through Shepherd's staff. God, I just pray that you would sustain and give them the grace that they need to love and to care for those that they are ministering to. Thank you for their love for this church and for their encouragement to the body here. Lord, we're just so, so grateful for what you're doing in their lives. Lord, we pray today for Grace, Grace Presbyterian Church and for Pastor Bill Thompson. Lord, they're getting ready to their, their version of VBS on June 7th through 11th. And I just pray that for the children who come, that God, you would speak to their hearts and draw them to yourself. God, we pray for that church that you would continue to revitalize, grow it, strengthen it. May they see conversions. May they reach their community with the gospel. And may your name be exalted in that body of believers. Lord, we also want to pray for the church that meets here, New Life in Christ Church. We pray for them as they seek wisdom and guidance for a new pastor that you would provide for them, that you would give them shepherds, Lord, to encourage them and to, to disciple them. Father, we pray for global missions. We pray for the students at Pundit University in Bangkok, Thailand. Lord, the missionaries that are working there among those students, we just pray that you would give them grace upon grace as they share the good news of Christ. Lord, COVID has been difficult. They've, they've ministered the gospel to a number of students this last past fall and because of COVID have not been able to follow up. But we just pray, Lord, that those students that they've invested in before the COVID, that God, that the, the seeds that have been planted would grow and the Holy, you, Holy Spirit, would help them remember the gospel and bring them to repentance and faith. We pray for those missionaries, Lord, that uh, they are able to follow up with these students and just encourage them. Father, thank you for our mothers here this morning. Thank you for their ministry, and I just pray, God, that you would continue to give them grace as they serve minister to their families and their children. Lord, it can be a wearisome task. Pray that you would give them strength and give them patience. I know some of the brothers are cringing at that right about now. God, just give them the grace they need to love their kids and to wait on you and to cry out to you, Lord, for the salvation of their children. But everybody in this room who has children, we want to see our children follow you. And the mothers here as well, God. May, may our children follow in the footsteps of faith. 
Lord, this morning as we give the offering that has been given, we just pray that you would use it to further your kingdom. Pray that we would use that offering wisely and use it, Lord, for those things that uh, the ministry here does. And I just pray, Lord, that you would multiply it and you would just use it in a great and mighty way. Thank you for gateway and opportunities that you've given to us. And Lord, as CJ comes and presents the word, I ask that you give him grace and wisdom to communicate your truth this morning. But more importantly, I pray for us who are listening. God, we would be attentive to your word and to your truth. That, Lord, we would leave this place after hearing the word rejoicing in the God of our salvation. And that, Lord, if there's anybody here who does not know Christ as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of salvation. We commit this morning to you. We thank you for it and give you the praise and the glory. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. I'm good now? I was on unmute, yeah. Okay, we're good. All right. Welcome. Good to see you. Excited to be able to uh, encourage you again this morning. Uh, pray for our pastor. He and his family are away in um, Florida. Um, we make, when he returns, we need to get ready for a building project because he's at Legoland. So, um, for a few days. <laughs> he and his kids, I love it. They are Lego fanatics. They love their Legos. And so... Uh, we, who knows what the Lord will stir in his heart for vision when he returns. But pray for them. They, they're going to be gone for a good bit of this week as well. And uh, just glad they're able to get away and have some time together as a family. So I also want to extend a happy Mother's Day to everyone, especially to these two beautiful women in the second row. To my beautiful wife, Nikki, who raised um, some wonderful kids and has been an awesome mom. And to my wonderful mama, Elaine, um, who raised me in the admonition of the Lord. And I'm here doing this because of you. You're a part of that. So, Didn't mean to go there, but anyway, it's okay to get a little emotional. It's going to be good to get a little emotional now because we're about to get into some heavy stuff. No, <laughs> Are you ready to dive into the law? Woo! Usually when you hear the Ten Commandments, you're like, okay, you know, time to take a little step back. And But what I want you to be encouraged with this morning, just like um, Grady brought up last week, you know, very clearly, what does the law require of us? And he mentioned it requires us to love God first and to love our neighbors ourselves. And in the midst of that, the beauty of it is, he established the law because he knew what? We could not fulfill it. <laughs> Period. He did it on purpose because he knew there's no way. And so, as Grady mentioned last week, the beauty of the law revealed our need for grace. And what I pray this morning is we're going to see when we look at the first two commandments, who are two sides really of the same coin. They really go hand in hand. You can't teach one without the other, because they both deal with a topic that all of us love so much in idolatry. But um, as we're going to look at that today, my heart for you is that whenever we hear or talk about the Ten Commandments, we normally get what? Self-focused. We're going to hear a lot of thou shalt nots. Do not do this. Do not do this. Do not do this. And that's not where I want you guys to, us to focus as we're going to go this morning. That is a part of it. But primarily, the Ten Commandments, when God brought this to the people and to us, it's to reveal much of himself. 
It's to make much of himself, to point us to him and who he is and what he does, and that that's the primary focus, not us. And so that's what I hope we see this morning. We're going to go through a lot of scriptures. Um, just to be aware, Joe's going to help me out in the back with some of these, but there's going to be many that I'm going to read that will not be on the screen because I just they're lengthy and I just want to get through them for us, but for context. Okay, so let me check my clock here. Um, so today we're looking at the first and second commandments. And what I want to do when I first, Grady, you know, allowed the opportunity for me to teach on these, and I really was excited to do so, um, even though after I went through it, as we all know, this has been a very convicting week, <laughs> as you can imagine, and may share a little bit about that later. But I want to give a historical context. I want to go through this fairly quickly. This helped me. I just, when I started praying about this, reading some commentary, started thinking about these two commandments, some of this stuff stirred in me about just how God does things, why he does things. As we all know, sometimes God reveals his nature and his ways by what he does, but many times we see God's nature and his ways by what he does not do. And I want to just see this one part here historically that I thought was just amazing and interesting to me. Y'all know I'm weird with some of this stuff. I see things simply. So I just want to give a little historical context about what led us up to the point of the law at Sinai. So very quickly, just bear with me as I read through some of this. I just want to relay this on. So from creation to the flood was approximately 1,600 years. Okay, In the midst of that, Adam lived 800 years after Seth was born. And many even believe that Adam knew Noah's father Lamech. Like he was alive at the time of Lamech, which is fun to just think about. And during that time, you can only imagine that Adam passed down oral history about creation, who God was, seeing God walk in the garden. I mean, the experience he had with Eve and, and Cain and Abel and all that he experienced for all those years. And I know, guys, when you hear these years, when I read through this, I'm like, I can't fathom or even comprehend 1,600 years or living on earth 800 years over a period of time and seeing, you know, Adam's family come to fruition over all these um, literally centuries. So in the midst of that time, some of our patriarchs came through. Enoch said, walked with God 300 years after Methuselah was born, and then God took him. God was great. He walked with God and was not. <laughs> He's in heaven right now, fully physical body. We don't know what that all means, but God just took him home because he was walked with the Lord so intimately. So all those years, 300 years, he was uh, walked with God after Methuselah. After Adam finally died, it was 725 years to the flood. And in Genesis 6, we see how mankind started operating in, his, in its nature, where Genesis 6, 5, and 6 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart, remember that word, every intent of the thoughts of his heart, man's heart, was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. But what was it said of Noah? Noah was blameless, righteous, walked with God. And at this point, after 725 years of man being man, and we can all attest what that means <laughs> in our ways, God said, humanity do over, got to start fresh. And so the flood came, and the Lord said, I'm going to save Noah and his family. So three couples were able to repopulate the earth. I just couldn't think, three couples, okay? So at that point, Noah lived 350 years after the flood. And in the midst of that time, around 102 years in, 100 to 200 years in, was the Tower of Babel. Noah's big family had a big reunion at this tower, 
and you know they were going to try to build it and go to God and going to had a little pride and said we're going to try to make a name for ourselves. That's literally the phrase. We're going to make a name for ourselves. And God went, uh oh, okay, not like he was surprised, but he just went, we got to deal with this. So God and we meaning us. It said and God let us go down, and so God came down, triune God in their however they wanted to work it out and confused the languages. So the biggest transition up to this point, literally. In 1,600 years, and now almost 1,800 years, Noah's big family was spread all over the earth, went global. Ham, Shem, Japheth, all gone, split, all these languages all over the world. And this big transition occurred, but there was a focal point, and that's the line of Shem. Shem's family is the lineage of Christ. And this is where things take a turn, where our scripture focuses on Shem and his lineage, and which leads us up to Abraham. And that was a little over 200 years from Babel, since that tower, since the flood, and 1,800 years since creation. Abraham was around 75 years old, where Scripture says God came and spoke to him and told him, I'm going to make a covenant with your family, with your people, with your lineage. And then showed up. After 1,800 years since creation, God showed up in his providence and his timing in a very personal, intimate way as a theophany. The pre-incarnate Christ showed up. The God who walked in the garden showed up and walked up to Abraham and said, hey, let's eat. And they hung around the campfire and talked and ate. So 1,800 years. So in the midst of all that, Abraham's lineage came down one after the other, and we see that it was Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And in the midst of that time, Abraham had to be passing down oral history. There is a point to all this. You can only imagine Abraham talking about when God showed up to him and when God saved his son Isaac with the ram and all the things God did and showed up, passed it to Isaac. Isaac passed it to Jacob. Jacob wrestled with God. Those stories, I mean, so God face to face. So all of these things had to be passed down over the hundreds of years. And finally, from Abraham to the actual exodus in Egypt was 720 years in that time frame. And obviously we know 430 years of that, the Hebrew people were enslaved by idolatry. So from creation to the exodus, to where we are now at Mount Sinai, was approximately 2,500 years. I just never thought about that. It was astounding. And it took that long in God's providence to finally show up and say, here I am. Here's who I am. Here's what I desire that we're going to talk about now. It's just amazing to me. After the flood, God allowed humanity, again, we know our nature, over 900 years, and we know with the help of, I have to add this in, with Satan, he's been at work since the garden, day one, working through man, working through depravity, his deceitfulness, all those things, 900 years, so the world would be cultivated with idolatry. There's idolatry all over the world at this point, up to Sinai, with Egypt, Greece is established, Rome's established, the Persian Empire is established, all these... Noah's big family <laughs> is out there and has been established in idolatry. And what is really sad about this, the practice of idolatry itself is already in the midst of God's people. The first mention of the word idol in Scripture is Genesis 31, 19, where God said, Rachel stole the household idols of her father Laban. It was already in Abraham's family, idolatry. And undermost to me, I just completely forgot this, in Joshua 24, verse 2, it says, Joshua is communicating to the people of Israel, he said, Terah, Abraham, and Nahor, Abraham and their brothers, Terah is Abraham's father, served other gods. Even Abraham, before God showed up in the midst at 75 years old to reveal himself fully, 
served other little G's. So I bring all that up to say is there was a pattern that God waited 2,500 years. I mean, think about it. We're not even as, since the death of Jesus. We're not at 2,500 years yet. So you think about the time frame that God and his providence allowed for him not to have to come in in his choice that he waited to bring and establish his law, his holiness, and his authority. And that brings us to this moment when God's on the mountain after 2,500 years and he's going to say, this is what I require of you. Not just of you, but I'm establishing this is who I am on this earth and what you're going to tell others about me and what I require of my people. So that leads us... That's a little intro, not too bad. Okay, so that leads us to where we are right now, the first and second commandment. So let's stand and let's read God's word together in honor of it. And to think at this moment, 2,500 years later, God shows up and reveals himself in this way. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. With, uh, visiting the iniquity of the fathers or the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Thank you for just seeing your word and your providence and your sovereignty. God, I pray today that all of us get a glimpse of the beauty of who you are, your splendor, your majesty. And God, we're going to be convicted. There's things we're going to talk about today that are going to challenge us and convict us. But I thank you, God, for your mercy and grace that is going to coat this whole thing, that we're going to see how amazing you are, how beautiful you are, even through the midst of the Ten Commandments that you brought, that we can see the beauty and the splendor of your majesty. Speak to us today, Holy Spirit. Teach us your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I am reading from the New American Standard. It's just the one I've been using for years. And so uh, if you see a little different than the ESV. So our question is through the catechism. We've been going through it. It's wonderful. So this question for today is, what does God require in the first and second commandments? This one's a little longer because it's two commands in one. So the answer to that is, what does God require? That we know and trust God as the only true and living God, and that we avoid all idolatry and not worship God improperly. I'm going to say it again, that we know and trust God as the only true and living God, and that we avoid all idolatry and not worship God improperly. So let's look back here again, Exodus 20. I want to break down the first few verses with some of the wordage and things, and then we're going to unpack it. We're going to bring some application. So Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3 again. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The key two words there is before me. Literally means in my sight or before my face. Um, the connotation is there. It could mean two ways of going, either a God in addition to me or one in opposition to me. And as we know, in a lot of cultures in the world, Sometimes God, our God, even the Hebrew God with Joseph in the land of Egypt, with Potiphar and all those guys, you know, the Pharaoh had no problem going, okay, we worship Baal and this and I'm God, but hey, if your Hebrew God can help us with the land and bring us some sustenance, okay, we're good. So a lot of nations and even in India, you go to anybody places with Hinduism, you go in their house and they may have a shelf with multiple gods. 
idols, statues, and things of that nature. So God's hitting, the Lord's hitting that head on. God is right here. Literally means do not prefer any other God to me. Obviously, little g. J.I. Packer says this is the fundamental and the foundational commandment. Again, it's lumped in with two. You can't separate them, but all the other eight flow from this. If this one is not acknowledged, recognized, obeyed, worshipped and sought after, just knowing who God is, you cannot do the other eight. It can't. They all flow out from under the beauty and the standard and the foundation of this, of this command. So let's look now at um, verses 4 through 6. So you shall have no other gods before me, none in my sight, none in addition to me. Do not prefer any other gods before me. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. So again, many of your translations may say a, a graven image or a carved image or a statue, and that's what the idol means. Nothing in the idol and likeness are synonyms. One means the same thing, nothing in my likeness. And what does he emphasize? The creation. Do not put or make anything that I've created, anything that's of creation, before me in an image, um, or there will be consequences. And we're going to look at that in a moment. So it literally says, no graven image. God reiterated, reiterated this command. And guys, there's going to be some test wordage here. I mean, God is bringing down some serious um, demands and knowing consequences, and he's establishing. I want you to see the beauty and the majesty of God's holiness with this. So let's look at Exodus 22.20. It'll be on the screen. And it says, he who sacrifices to any god other than to the Lord alone shall be utterly destroyed. Look at Exodus 23, 13. Now concerning everything which I have said to you, be on your guard and do not mention the name of other gods, nor let them be heard from your mouth. So not only bringing across the possible consequence of destruction and sacrificing to them, but don't even mention them from your, your breath, your mouth. Make no mention of any other gods. No improper substitutes. The worship of a man-made representation was nothing less than hatred toward God. Look back at verse 5 again. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Here it is. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. He related disobeying this, putting a little g before him, as hatred toward God. And what this part of the scripture literally means is, he's warning this generation, you people I'm speaking to right now, if you don't abide by this, if you don't obey this, and you share this sin in your disobedience to your children, and they to their children, and they to their children, there's going to be consequences. I will visit the consequences upon your children's 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 children. Obey my words. It's that serious to the Lord. Um, I'm going to read this from... Uh, how Paul, I love it, how Paul describes this rebellion, and I'm going to read this, it won't be on the screen. A very familiar passage, but it hones in directly on the rebellion here, and Paul just, uh, addresses it. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, 
his creation, so that they are without excuse. We talked about this a few weeks ago with the Imago Dei. There is no excuse. We walk outside, we should say, God, you're evident. We know you're real from walking out this room. <laughs> Just looking at creation and, as we talked about the Imago Dei a few weeks ago, by looking at each other. I look at my nephew, Gary, God's real. He made Kirkland. Look at him. Uniquely and specifically and all this, there's got to be a God. He did not get formed out of a primordial soup and over time, you know, become an ape and blah, 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 blah. God handmade him in his mother's womb, my sister right there. That makes me go, man, there's got to be a, a beautiful God out there, a creator, an intelligent designer. And that's what God is speaking here. Paul's saying that there should, there's no excuse of not believing. But he talks about their unrighteousness. Um, verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Remember the word heart. These individuals, these, un, these evil people, unrighteous people, ungodly people, their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And the, here it is. This is the key, you guys. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds, four-footed animals, crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Here it is, the lie from the garden. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul just reiterated the commandment. They worshiped and served the creature, things made in heaven, under the earth, on the earth, then the creator who is blessed forever. This is the, the first idolatry began in the garden. When Satan looked at Adam and Eve and went, did God really say... Did he really mean that if you eat of this, you're going to have the knowledge of good and evil and be like him? And Adam and Eve went, hmm, we're going to look to ourselves and, and selfishly we're going to listen to Satan instead of listening to God. They exchanged one, the truth of one for the lie from the other. So why would Paul make this clear description here? Because he knows what was written and what happened to Mount Sinai. The ways of man and our Adamic nature, guys, were clearly revealed. And we're going to hear a lot of familiar verses here. But again, I just want us to see some of these to be, to recognize and to remind us of our nature and how we are no different than some of these even back then sitting at the base of the mountain. So let's look at Exodus 24, verse 3. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. And verse 7 and 8, of 24. He said, then he took the book of the covenant. He had the, the law. God had already spoken to Moses. I'm sorry, yeah, and he brought it down. He took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And here's what the people declared. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. All these people saw the miracles of God. They saw the angel of death pass. They saw the frogs and the flies and the blood and everything. They saw the miracles at the Red Sea. A sea parted. They saw the power of God manifested. And they made that declaration right there as Moses came down. Well, guess what? Moses had to go back up. And he spent 40 days there. And like human beings that we are, we struggle with the word. Starts with a P. Patience. <laughs> and so 40 days, it took 40 days. Days, 40 days, for our human nature 
to be revealed again. And in Exodus 32, this is what it says. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we did not know what this has become of him. Look at the wordage here. God is the one that went before them. God was the cloud by day and the fire by night. And now they're attributing it, let's have another little G. Let's bring another God in. This man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, when it was God who did so. Verse 4, so Aaron took the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf, graven image. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. They brought glory to the wrong God. Verses 7 through 10, the Lord spoke to Moses again and said, <laughs> sometimes God does, is humorous. There is there's, there's humor in scripture. And even though he was angry and the anger of the Lord burned, listen to how the Lord responded. Looked at came and said, Moses, go down at once for your people, <laughs> your people, for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. He didn't use my at this point, he's like, just like we do with our kids, that's your child today. Those are your people and you, whom you brought up in land have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it. There's the worship and the serve. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them and I will make of you a great nation. God still had a plan if he was going to destroy them. He would, could still make them a great nation. God has ways. But what I love about this is Moses interceded and God showed mercy. But this is what, again, another aspect of his attributes. God showed amazing mercy. Instead of wiping out almost two million people, which people estimates what it was, God showed mercy, but still thousands died that day as a consequence of their actions. Thousands. But that still was God's mercy. And Moses was able to see it, and those who remained alive were able to see the power of God manifested. So why the strong consequence to the rebellion? So I want you to look here, look back at verse 5, Exodus 20, verse 5. Why was there such a strong consequence? God said, you shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a what? Jealous God. God, this is amazing. Right out of the gate, the first and second commandments that he's revealing his glory, his power, his holiness, everything. He is revealing one of the key attributes of his nature, of his jealousy. And sometimes I know it's hard for us to reconcile that word with God, right? I've struggled with that. Because for us, jealousy is a what? A sin. If we're jealous, we're sinful. When it applies to God, that is not the case, obviously. So I'm going to read the Exodus chapter 34, verses 10 through 17. Listen to this. God said, Behold, I'm going to make a covenant. Even in the midst of their rebellion, God's promises remain true. He is faithful to his covenants and his promises. He says, I'm going to make you a covenant before all your people. I'm going to perform miracles which you have not been produced in all the earth. And among all the nations and all the people among you will live, will see the working of the Lord. For it is a fearful thing that I'm going to perform with you. Be sure to observe what I command you this day. I'm going to hold that. Look at verse 6 in Exodus 20. Look at the end of this. After God brings the hammer down and says there's going to be consequences, but look what he shows in verse 6. But showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. 
God shows his mercy, his grace, his love. Even in the midst of this requirement and this demand, God is saying, I am a loving God, I'm a merciful God, and I will bring blessings if you love me and you obey me. Continuing on, behold, God says, I'm going to drive out the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, all the ites. No, he didn't say that, I added that on. Okay. He said, watch yourself that you make no covenant with these inhabitants of the land into which you're going. Here's a key phrase. I want you to remember this again. Remember, we're remembering the word heart. Here's another phrase. You are to tear down their altars, smash their pillars. Do not obey or the inhabitants. They will become a snare in your midst. For you shall not worship any other God. For the Lord, here it is, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. His name is jealous. I mean, we could do a whole sermon on all the different names of God, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Jireh, all the... His name is jealous. It's a part of his nature. It's who he is. And God declares it thus. He said, otherwise you might make a covenant with these inhabitants, all the ites of the land. And here's another phrase I want you to remember. Remember heart, snare. If you make a covenant with these inhabitants... They would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and someone might invite you to eat the sacrifice. And you may take some of the daughters for your sons, and take his daughters and might play the harlot with their gods, and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. You shall make for yourself no molten gods. You think I was trying to get a point across? He mentioned play the harlot three times. And we're going to get to the connotation of that later, and you already know. So God's here is dealing with the heart, idolatry with the snare, and this aspect of playing the harlot. Look at the screen here, Deuteronomy 6, 13 through 15. God says, You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods or any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. It's going back to all the ites. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. Whew. This is why guys, some folks don't like saying the God of the Old Testament. But guess what? The God who made that statement is the God who went to the cross for you. The God who was willing to wipe a nation off the face of the earth is the God who took your sin, who took your place, who took your death, that you and I deserved. But, and he has every right to make that statement. Amen. He is holy, righteous, perfect, glorious, majestic. And there's not enough adjectives <laughs> to describe him. And so he is putting some emphasis here on his jealousy. I am a jealous God. The ESV commentary, which Grady would love that I'm doing this, um, says God's jealousy is not the sinful emotion of envy that characterizes human jealousy. It is the righteous concern to protect the truth that he is the creator of the universe and that he alone, not little g-gods of human invention, deserve human praise. That's the essence of his jealousy. So let's quickly look at a couple important truths about God's jealousy. First and foremost, as he just revealed, God's primary passion is for his holy name and his honor. These commandments were spoken first because God's primary passion and his jealousy is for his holy name and his honor. Look at Isaiah 42, verse 8. Very familiar passage. God declares, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to a graven image. 
Ezekiel 20, verses 7 through 11. I'm going to read this. God said, I said to them, cast away each of you the detestable things of his eyes. Do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. They did not cast away those detestable things of their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. Here it is, key phrase. But I acted for the sake of my name. Guys, every single thing God does is for the sake of his name. For the sake of his reputation. For the sake of his glory, honor. All that's encapsulated there. Everything he does is for this purpose. He said that it should not be profaned. My name should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived. In whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. God is saying, I, I made my power known. I revealed my glory, my everything that I am amongst Egypt. Through all the plagues, by being merciful and not wiping all of them out. And now you're going to profane my name and disobey me. And when people see that you're supposedly my people and you're going to act this way against me. What does that say about me? <laughs> and so this is how serious it is to God. The jealousy of his heart for his name, his renown, his honor. Look at Ezekiel 39, 25. God says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. J.I. Packer says, God's jealousy is not a compound of frustration, envy, and spite, as human jealousy so often is, but appears instead as a literally praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely precious. I want to read that part. I just love that. God's jealousy is a praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely precious. And what is precious is his name. The honor and the glory and the holiness of his name. So that's primary. That's why God, jealousy and the beauty of that. And I just love how he put that here in the, in the second commandment. Secondly, just want to look, God's jealousy, as we hear and see with the rest of the commandments, God's jealousy is directly um, toward, directed exactly toward his people. And this word applies to us. It is to his people. John Frame says, theologian, God's jealousy is a passionate zeal to guard the exclusiveness of a marriage relationship. Here's where it takes a little turn. God's jealousy is a passionate zeal to guard the exclusiveness of a marriage relationship. Remember God's warning not to what? Play the harlot. His jealousy is one of aspects of his love. It's just one. Although God has some love for all of his creatures, as we have seen, he has an exclusive love for his own people, his bride. And he demands the same from us, his bride. When we violate that love, he behaves like a godly husband and he becomes jealous. And there's nothing wrong with that jealousy because it reflects the intensity of his love. Guys, God's jealousy as it's directed toward us is specifically directed toward our idolatry. Our idolatry. And all the people said, amen. amen. It's, it's what we struggle with. It happened in the garden. It's what we struggle with today. God deserves and requires exclusive worship. I love just worship has so much to it. It's adoration. We give homage. We bow down. We give reverence. And I love this part of the definition. To worship the Lord. To worship anything is to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. Don't let that settle. 
Because this is what we struggle with on a daily basis. What do we worship? Who do we worship? What do we bow our knee to? And God desires and deserves and demands that we honor him with extravagant love and extreme worship. Let's look again at Exodus 20, verses 3 through 5 again. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven, above, or on the earth, or beneath, or under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for the Lord your God is a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. He emphasizes idolatry because idolatry is the fundamental sin. We all use the word pride all the time, but what's at the root of pride? Idolatry. <laughs> okay? So even going back to the... And the reason idolatry is the fundamental sin, that makes this command, the first and second, the fundamental command to offset and to let us know we have to not do this sin. And this is a phrase that we've heard many times, but idolatry is spiritual adultery. We commit adultery against God. Plain and simple. And that's not a word we want to hear or try to relate with that. But I hope we see there has to be a weight, saints, hear me, a weight to our sin. That we recognize the choices we make and things we look to, there's a weight to that. And how we come can bow a knee to something else other than the Lord. So idolatry simply is when anything or anyone takes the place of God, anything we devote our energy to, our time, that we make sacrifices for, where we love it or serve it instead of the Lord himself. And guys, I know right now, in, you know, for my life, I'm, all week I've been struggling with this. Man, I've been convicted so much this week. Going over this list in my head, the, the struggle list, the idol list, money, pleasure, material possessions, position, recognition, success, knowledge. Oh yeah, I had a sidebar for the knowledge one. Guys, we've got to be careful, especially some of these young bucks that I like discipling and being around, these young guys. We can make an idol out of theology. Hear me, I'm saying that. You can get so enraptured in knowing who God is and all about him and the word and being right about everything and all this, you make it an idol. Because you're emphasizing more on the knowledge of God than God himself. Amen. Just a little you know, caution there. So, and there's nothing wrong with passion for theology. I love theology. But sometimes I've seen this become an idol in guys' lives and because they're pursuing the knowledge of something than the person. Amen. Just to be careful. All right, and the next one, I just got to say it, and I've mentioned it here a few times, and I'm still struggling, bowing my knee to this, and it's food. Ooh. It's okay. You can laugh. I mean, it's a, we got to have a little bit of levity, or we're all going to be like leaving here like this. And again, no condemnation, guys. This list is a part of our sanctification process, our Adamic nature, what we struggle with. I have bowed the knee to food too many times, and sadly, many of us, other people, can absolutely be idols in our lives. Any kind of relationship. Any relationship we have can turn into an idol when we look to those things or those people instead of the Lord for satisfaction, love, devotion, loyalty, love, all those type things. Now, all of these things, are they bad in and of themselves? No, none of these things are bad. Paul Tripp has a great way of explaining this. I just wanted to read this quote coming down the home stretch. Y'all are like, thank God. <laughs> so, we're, the leadership here, the elders are going through a book by Paul Tripp called Lead, L-E-A-D, for our elders, and it's about leadership. And he has these quotes from this chapter called Balance. And this book is amazing, but it is nailing us <laughs> in a good way. It is very convicting, very challenging, and we're just loving it to a certain extent. But um, very convicting. But here's what Paul says about this, and it's just so good. Idolatry is when good things are out of balance in our hearts. There's that word again. 
God has brought it up in multiple situations, the heart. Things take on a greater weight in our hearts than God does. Idolatry is when our heart is out of balance. Every good thing that takes on more weight than God intended becomes a bad thing, and that something can be disruptive and even dangerous. Look at Exodus 23, 33. God said again, do not live, they shall not live in, the, in your land because they will make you sin against me. Talking about all those ites. Don't let any of those ite people live in your land. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a what? Snare to you. There it is again. You will be hooked, you'll be entangled. It's like literally trapped or you know, shackled. That's what idolatry does in our lives, you guys. It can be a snare to us. And I'm not going to read it now because just time-wise, I want to respect that. But in my opinion, one of the greatest examples in Scripture, which I hate to see it because it it's, could be us, but just to show how the dangers and snares of idolatry, go fully and read 1 Kings 11. And who was the wisest man the Scripture says ever lived? Do you guys know how Solomon ended his life? Not in a good way. It was horrifying what he did. I'm going to read a couple parts here. King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, all the ites. He had every kind of ite woman. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, don't go there. Don't have anything to do with them. You shall not associate with them. He said, because if you do, here's a phrase God said, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. But Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. And guys, it got to the point where he was being building temples and statues and altars to gods that people would sacrifice their children to. This is Solomon, the wisest man scripture says ever lived, who David's son, who had a relationship with God, knew God, heard all the stories, about, and he went to this length because he was misguided by the idolatry of his wives. He turned his heart more toward his wives and to these O's relationships than to the God of the universe. To the God that put him in power. To the God that gave him that kingdom. He got to that point and the danger and the snares of idolatry destroyed his kingdom. God eventually snatched it from him. From his family, everything. And it went to someone else. So, Paul warns us, last scripture here, in 1 Corinthians 10, about this snare of idolatry. He says, for I do not want you to be unaware, talking to the church in Corinth, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. He's giving a rehashing of, of, the, of the Exodus with Moses. And they all drank with the same spiritual drink and they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And here's the key. And the rock was Christ. He connects Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Son of God, to the exodus. The cloud by day, the fire by night. Do you remember what Jesus declared at the temple? He said, I am the light of the world. And he declared it during the festival that was celebrating the exodus. Jesus was saying, I was there, guys. That's me. I'm the God that showed up in the wilderness. I'm the God that did the provision. I'm the one who guided you. And Paul's connecting it here. And Paul said, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. For they, I love this, they were laid low in the wilderness, and then here's what Paul said. These things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. And he went on to say, I'm just going to summarize it, don't be idolaters like they were. Do not act immorally as they did, and 23,000 fell down in one day, died. 
Do not try the Lord as they did. Do not grumble as they did. And all these things happened as an example. They were written for our instruction, Paul is saying. But God, and this is where it's connected to the temptation, and Paul says, Therefore let he who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape. And we all said, Amen. Man, we have a way of escape through the power of the cross, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And you will be able to endure it. And then his last challenge is flee from idolatry. So that temptation scripture is directly connected to idolatry. It's directly connected to putting anything above or in addition to God in any form or fashion that we may be tempted with. So very simply, so how can we not do this? How do we flee from immorality, flee from idolatry, not act immoral, don't try God, don't grumble? And God, he makes it very clear. We trust the power of the Holy Spirit who empowers us to help us. We look to God who is faithful. We know and trust the one true and living God who is our faithful king. That's it. I mean, there's not a formula. There's not some, you know, points that we have to go through. It's a relationship. We have to invest and cultivate this relationship to look to him and him alone. And the only way Nikki and I fell in love with each other was time was effort, was being together, was cultivating a relationship, was talking, communicating, being together in each other's presence. And through that time, trust is built, love is built. All that comes together, and God desires the same thing with us. We have to, key part of this, is to remember and meditate on who God is and what he has done. He declared to the Israelites, I am the Lord your God. And what did he say after this? Very, I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of slavery. He said, this is who I am, this is what I've done. All through the rest we hear, this is who I am, this is what I've done. And we've got to remember that. We've got to meditate on who he is and what he's done in our lives. The reason we're sitting in this room is because God is miraculous to save us, to cleanse us, to convict us, to bring us to a place of repentance, to transform our hearts. He is worthy of praise and worship, and he desires the king and ruler and creator of the universe desires to be with you intimately. Amen. Guys, you grasp that? I mean, I know we can flippantly say it, but if you truly grasp the measure of that, in this room, he wants to know you, to experience your presence, for you to read his word, pray, enjoy him, the God who made all of this. Look outside. The God who made those things wants to be with you and know you. And as we do that, as we cultivate that quality time with God, knowing he's a jealous God, then we can not have to struggle. One thing my dad always said, one thing I remember for the rest of my life, he said, son, and it's not something you put on a plaque, but he said, guys, you know, we're never going to be sinless in our sanctification process. We're going to struggle every day with the pollution of sin. We're going to sin. But he said, by God's grace, mercy, power, we can sin less. And the same with this. I'm going to struggle with idolatry. I'm going to bow my knee at times to all these good things at times because of my struggle with my flesh, with all the things that I deal with. But by God's grace and power and the relationship with the Lord, knowing him intimately, understanding who he is, seeing what he's doing in my life, by God's grace and power, I cannot bow as much. Amen. More and more, I don't. I don't have to. I can worship him and him alone, look to him as my satisfaction, my source, my everything. 
And that is what I wanted to encourage you guys with this this morning. And praise God, we're on this side of the cross. Amen? Praise God, we have his grace and mercy. And we can look at the cross and see his love, grace, and mercy. And through his resurrection power and his ascension, as he's ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father, we have that power, that God, interceding for us, helping us to be able to endure and to stand, or if we bow the knee, it's to him and him alone. And that's what he desires. Last quote from Tall Trip. He said, it's only when God is in his rightful place in my heart that people and things are then in their appropriate place in my thoughts, desires, and actions. And guys, this is where it plays out. If we have the balance in our hearts of where God is supposed to be as the Lord on the throne, then it flows out of us <laughs> to be missional, to impact others, to be encouraging for others, to be salt and light, to represent him well, and to show a world who's living in idolatry that there's only one true God. And his name is Jesus Christ. He is our king. And that's what he desires for us. So I pray that when our hearts are in balance, we can then honor God rightly. And as the answer says, worship him properly as he is worthy of and do. Amen? Sorry for going long. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you so much for God just getting us a glimpse of the majesty of who you are and your attributes and your ways. And God, I just pray for each of us right now. We all struggle, even coming in this morning. We bowed the knee to something this morning in some form or fashion. But I pray, God, we realize and recognize your mercy, your grace, your forgiveness. God, that it's not your desire for us to do so, but it's your desire for us to look to you, to bow our knee to you, to see you as our satisfaction, as our source, the only one that we have adoration for, devotion for, homage, everything that you deserve in worship. So I pray that you bring just your spirit of conviction. Conviction is a beautiful thing, saints, when God convicts our hearts and turns our hearts back to him. I pray, God, you bring our hearts into balance this morning to see you for who you are rightly, to worship you rightly, to honor you rightly, and in turn, know what you've done in our hearts and to be salt and light and know you desire for us to worship you in loan, for us to go out into the world and reveal the glory of who you are, that your name and your reputation would be evident in our life and for you to receive all the honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So 
want to reiterate the question and the answer just to declare this together so our question today is what does God require in the first and second commandments and let's declare this together the answer that we know and trust God as the only true and living God and that we avoid all idolatry and not worship God improperly God it just continues never ceases to amaze me that we have the opportunity of walking out this door right now and even fellowshipping hereafter that we get to represent the reputation of your name. We get to represent your holiness and your justice and your jealousy and all that you are, God. So I pray today that as we leave here, that we recognize that, that we leave here missional. No, we have an opportunity this week to represent you well, to bring honor and glory to your name and to let people know that you are real and that you are the only one and true living God who deserves all praise, all honor, all glory, all worship. May we represent that this week. And, and love you through it and experience that intimacy that you so deserve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.